I go to sleep that night thinking, ah. <laughs> I'm so sorry I even presented you with the option to do that again. <laughs> Welcome to Blind Spotters, a movie podcast about the movies we've missed. I'm Zach Pocklib. And I'm Amanda Luberto. And today we're doing a movie swap. I watched The Manchurian Candidate for the first time. And Amanda, what did you watch? I watched Training Day. We're swapping some Denzel movies this month because you know what? Why the hell not? Denzel, probably the movie star of our lifetimes. It's like between him and Tom Hanks uh, for being for real, for real. But before we get into all things Denzel, how are you doing? What have you been watching? I'm doing good. Just been watching some movies. We had the Oscars nominations come out. So I'm catching up on anything that I haven't seen yet. Um, And I've actually watched some really good movies recently. I think I'm watching fewer movies and more TV because toward the end of the year, I always want to cram in as many movies as possible and I miss out on what's going on in TV. But the movies I have been watching have been really good. So I watched Interstellar for my very first time. It might be my favorite Christopher Nolan movie. Um, I haven't given it too much thought, but I was really blown away by that movie. How did you feel about the Timothy Chalamet jump scare that is in that movie? I think I like vaguely remembered that he was in it, so it wasn't as bad. But wow, baby Timmy. He's pretty heartbroken, if I remember right, about like a lot of his lines being cut out. I have to revisit that movie. I haven't seen it since I went on a first date to go see it. (laughs) I liked it and it played well at home. Like I just have like a normal system. Um, Another movie I watched for the first time was Sleeping with the Enemy, the Julia Roberts thriller. She is so beautiful. And that movie is so campy. That was my like big takeaway. Is it like definitely isn't as like cutting edge as it maybe was at one point and maybe it never was, but it is very like dramatized and very it has like a glean to the whole thing. Like everything's like not in soft focus, but like certainly not in like a high definition focus. <laughs> and the scenes are like a little corny, but I was like riveted. So it still like holds up in that way. Um, and then the last movie I watched was something I had never heard of, is not on my radar. Um, but occasionally like following film accounts, it'll be like top five thrillers you've never heard of or whatever and I'll save them and when I have no idea what to watch I'll go through and see if anything sparks my interest um but this movie was on a list of like top like movie twists you've never seen or whatever and I watched the movie Predestination and it was really good I maybe it's not like cinema really good but it was like movie really good and uh sarah snook is in it from succession fame and it real it is really really twisty so i just had like a really fun time watching that movie and if you like twisty movies i definitely suggest it fascinating i've not seen that one either yeah i think you would like it um so i just had a fun time nice how are you what have you been up to what have you been watching good i've been reading you know tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow properly hyped um that's probably going to be one of the seven books i read this year not because i don't like reading but just because i watch too much movies so but the movies i have been watching uh one of them is the hustler 1961 sports movie with paul newman uh he plays fast eddie 
uh, and he would reprise that character in Color of Money, um, which is fun. I haven't seen Color of Money, but I wanted to watch The Hustler first. So now I feel like I can finally watch um, Tom Cruise and Paul Newman play pool. Uh, <laughs> I also watched uh, Bell, Book, and Candle, which is a Kim Novak, Jimmy Stewart movie in which Kim Novak plays a witch who entrances Jimmy Stewart to fall in love with her. I would do the same thing if I was a witch. Her, her cat's name is Pie Wacket. Um, or pie as she calls her for short and this movie came out uh the same year as vertigo so uh they ran it back and reader i loved it uh it's campy jack lemon plays a pretty deranged character as well oh that's fun good time i would either run it right now or during spooky season or during christmas season so uh there you go for that one and then lastly i watched the anne hathaway iconic vehicle Ella Enchanted for the very first time, oh. um, one of my partner's favorite movies, and so we finally knocked that one out. It's a movie I thought I had seen uh, until maybe like five or six years ago um, when I realized that Enchanted and Ella Enchanted were two different movies, and I liked both, and I liked Ella Enchanted. Anne Hathaway is really having a moment right now. Shout out to uh, whatever that song is in the club that she was at. <laughs> She's like probably the hottest woman alive. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't think that Anne Hathaway gets enough credit for just, like, her career and her existence as a celebrity. I think everybody decided they hated her because she looked at the Oscar statue and said, it came true. Oh, is that why? <laughs> I think so. I think she just gave theater kid energy at the wrong time in, a, like, a big... Uh, All those losers are also <laughs> theater kids. Don't let them fool you. Either way, Ella, um, Anne Hathaway, not that she ever went anywhere, um, but she is certainly having a... Uh, second moment um, in her illustrious career. So um, that's what we've been watching. But let's get to the movies we are swapping. Speaking of movie stars and speaking of maybe the most highly and unanimously approved movie star of the last 30 years, uh, Denzel Washington. Amanda, why don't you talk about the movies we are swapping? Before I get to the movies we're swapping, I didn't write this in the outline. So I'm I'm pulling a Zach on you where I'm going to catch you off guard with the question. Who are the actors? And that's like, across genders that are in the tier of Denzel Washington, like around our time. So not like Cary Grant, not, you know, right, anybody yeah. like that. Um, but like maybe the last like 40, 50 years, I'm thinking like it has to just be Denzel Washington, Meryl Streep, uh, Tom Hanks, Leo DiCaprio. Is that it? <laughs> I think it depends because Tom Hanks and Denzel came around the same time. Like they broke out late eighties and then dominated the nineties. So they are contemporaries. I think Leo comes a little bit afterward and he's younger, but he has the same kind of star power. Yeah. Um, Julia Roberts, definitely in the nineties, um, tailed off toward the aughts. Uh, but Sandra Bullock as well. Um, but I don't think you have what makes, Denzel and Tom Hanks because I think they are kind of uniquely tied um, special is their longevity they've been relevant for I think three four decades at this point yeah Brad Pitt also is a huge is a huge movie star but I, he doesn't have that same gravitas as as Denzel so I think there's been stars who have had big mo- like Tom Cruise we're forgetting Tom Cruise as well yeah that's a good um, one too but when you combine like both the um, prestige chops and the likability 
and just the ability to like mold into different films and not only be like an uh, auteur movies, but also be in action movies and be in comedies and stuff like that. It's really just Denzel and Tom Hanks, I think. And actors have hung there for a minute. Like Russell Crowe is up there for a minute. Um, but then, you know, fell off and adjusted. I was thinking like I named those like five people. I guess you, you could probably put Tom Cruise in there also because I feel like those five actors. And again, it's uh, Streep. Viola Davis, Tom Cruise, or Tom Hanks, Denzel Washington, and Leo oh. DiCaprio. Sorry, but I think Meryl Streep comes before them. Yeah, like, no, no. But I, I, I'm because I think she's like more in, with like. I'm not thinking chronologically. I'm thinking like in like those five. Take those five actors of all the actors the last fifty years, and like if they're all in the same even playing field, those five I think are the only ones I can think of who have the matched energy of their acting gravitas, like like their technical, theatrical, like acting ability and their movie stardom is like both exceptional. Like I think that Tom Cruise is like close, but I think he's like 60% movie star, 40% actor, if that makes sense. The, the gigantic one we're missing is Jack Nicholson. Oh, yeah. That's a really good one, too. But that's because I was kind of... I thought you were th- asking like a chronological, like, who's up there with Denzel? No. I'm thinking, like, since, like, you know, between, like, 50 years ago and now, like, in that chunk of actors. Oh, so if we're including the 70s, you have to include, like, Dustin Hoffman. You have to include uh, Jack Nicholson. Point being, it's a very small club of people yeah. who are exceptional actors yeah. And also exceptional movie stars. And I think yeah, that he so is funny. like in that tiny club. What's for sure is that, like we said, I think if you ask most people our age, uh, you can probably pinpoint. I think everybody has a top five Denzel and a top five Tom Hanks if you're born when we were born. Um, okay. So we are swapping Denzel movies because of this idea that he's in this elite club of actors that have like risen above what it means to be an actor and they're doing it at the best of their ability for the longest and better than anyone else. Um, So we wanted to pay tribute to that. And, you know, maybe we'll do it with other actors that we really like. But I just thought that we both had a Denzel movie on our list and it would be a good way to pair them. Um, So that is why we're doing them together. And Zach, maybe let's flip a coin. Let's do it. Call it. Heads. All right, it's Tails. Nice. So I'm picking, and uh, we're talking about training day. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> Amanda, this shit's chess, not checkers. You watch training day. What happened in this movie? I was actually watching it and thinking of like one-liners that you might use as the intro. <laughs> That's so funny. Here's what happened in 2001's training day. LAPD officer Jake Hoyt is played by Ethan Hawke. He's searching to become a detective, so he's sent to spend a day with highly known narcotics officer, Detective Alonzo Harris, played by Denzel Washington. Almost instantly, he can tell that Alonzo is hard to read. Jake can't really get a grasp on when he's kidding and when he's serious because everything feels really serious. Um, Alonzo is an unruly guy, and that's obvious really quickly. And he makes Jake smoke out of a pipe Uh, holding him at gunpoint and lying to him about it being PCP, essentially drugging him. He doesn't intervene when Jake tries to stop a rape until like the very end. He violently apprehends a crippled crack dealer 
and doesn't arrest in exchange for his employer's name. He uses a fake search warrant to steal money from the drug kingpin's house. All of it is just very overwhelming, but he's very confident and is saying like, this is how the streets work and this is for the greater good. Attempting to go with the flow, Jake goes to Alonzo's house with him where he visits his girlfriend and child and also to a restaurant where Alonzo meets with three corrupt high-ranking police officers that warn him that the Russian mafia is after him. Using a real warrant, Alonzo, Jake, and other officers, they go to the drug lord's house. Alonzo discovers the $4 million, stealing a quarter of it. Then he shoots him. The other officers come up with a plan to cover it up. And when Jake tries to intervene, Alonzo makes it clear how he's been setting Jake up from the very beginning of the day to not be able to do that and basically pinning it on Jake or making it look bad for him. Later, Jake and Alonzo go to the house of a Mexican gangster named Smiley, who tells Jake that Alonzo set him up and he left him here. During a beating, Jake connects Smiley to the rape he stopped earlier, and Smiley lets him go because he sa- Jake saved his little cousin, who was the girl. Looking for revenge for leaving him to his death, Jake returns to Alonzo's girlfriend's house. A shootout and a chase occur resulting in Alonzo realizing the neighborhood he'd been protecting didn't really have his back the way he thought they did. Jake leaves. Alonzo attempts to flee, only to be killed by the Russian mafia. Jake hears the press report of Alonzo's death as he finally returns home. I feel like I got the major points. And so concludes Jake's no good, very bad day. (laughs) Yeah, honest to God. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So why did you pick this movie? Um, This is the movie that got Denzel his best actor um, Oscar. It is perhaps the uh, top five most iconic Denzel performance. If you're going to do a Denzel impression, you're probably going to pull at least part of it from Training Day. Um, and it's a movie that, you know, holds up. I, I think it, it's a it's a good watch. It's a thrilling watch. It has aged um, appropriately. And uh, it's also a showcase for, for Ethan Hawke. I know I especially, but both of us are fans of um, the Before Trilogy and like uh, other Ethan Hawke vehicles. So it's fun to see him uh, kind of try to go toe to toe with Denzel um, at his fighting prime i guess so um with that in mind what stood out to you on your first watch so i cannot believe that this all happened in one day like you joked so concludes the not the not so good very bad day or whatever and this was something i was really paying attention to while the movie was happening like i think i realized it maybe halfway through like oh this is like still the same day And it became something that I kept reminding myself of as the movie was progressing. And holy cow, I was even thinking like, wow, I have really nothing to complain about, even though this movie is fictional. (laughs) I was like, wow, some people have way worse than I do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is, in fact, one single training day. Ugh, how exhausting, which leads me to my second point, which was if I was Jake, Pretty immediately, I would have just started crying and asked to go home. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, no, 100%. Like The moment I'm being held at gunpoint to smoke weed, I'd be like, you know what? I actually don't need to be a detective, it turns out. Please take me home. I'm going to cry and call my therapist. This is so scary. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, another thing I uh, thought about, and I actually texted you um, like as I was finishing the movie, like this film is like always moving. There are, from the moment you meet Denzel to the very last second, like there are no breaks. It is just the most, it's like the loudest thing possible happening right after the other. Um, it almost reminds me of Wolf of Wall Street in that way, where it is just like, constantly going and then by the time it ends you're like (sighs) and that's that's what training day felt like to me i mean yeah as soon as he says uh this is the office baby going up like you're moving you know there's a lot of places in la you gotta drive um and i think we'll get to both the car and both la um in a little bit but it it is a a visceral um well-paced story so shout out to fuqua and david ayer for that one yeah, but even like the the moments that are quieter, like Jake falling asleep on the couch with the kid or Alonzo meeting the three corrupt uh, police officers, those like not as violent or visceral scenes are still like packed with like action, even if it's like verbal action, like there's just still so much happening all the time. There's such an intensity to everything. And part of that is a lot of it is Denzel Washington's performance and um, because he is the one that so often seems like he knows something you don't and you realize over the course of the story that you don't know anything. Like even though Jake's your avatar into this world, there are so many more layers than Alonzo is a corrupt cop. It just continues to unfold and unfold and unfold until uh, we get toward the end. So um, there's a lot packed into this movie that isn't a very long movie and there's not really a wasted scene there's no wasted scene and it's like properly long like there's no i didn't want to be in the movie more because i was so exhausted but i also didn't want to bail out earlier than that like it it really is like properly lengthed once you got past all those initial thoughts and moments uh, what have you thought about the most since watching i've really thought about how scary denzel washington is in this movie like he's legitimately terrifying to me in in this movie and maybe it's because i my relationship to his acting is with more like stoic heroic fatherly like like uh solid type men like do-gooders almost and that is like kind of how i see him it would be, you know, obviously Tom Hanks has like a, a a comedic aspect to him that makes him America's dad. But if he like did a movie where he's like a twisted psycho, I, I would be like so scared because like that's not how I see Denzel Washington. And to watch him do something that is undeniably evil is like shocks you even more he's not a bill skarsgård like we were saying on a different episode where you see him on screen you're like okay he's gonna be playing someone evil he's gonna do something fucked up like that's like the character i know from him and that's not the character i know from denzel so when he like throughout this whole movie i was like this is like a side i've never seen and this range is like unbelievable and who am i to be like denzel washington what a good actor (laughs) But you know what I'm trying to say? <laughs> At this point of his career, he was like really trying to go for the Oscar, I feel like, because he had been in the hurricane. He had been in Remember the Titans. 
um he was in a spike lee movie or several spike lee movies at this point he got game and he had won the uh supporting Supporting actor actor. oscar already but he hadn't won best actor right and like he had also tapped into like playing questionably like questionable moral guys like yeah in devil in a blue dress in he got game in uh mo better blues like he had played people that you were like moments of unease but then he always comes back around and like does the right thing or wins or something like that I, like i don't know about you i watched this movie and uh i'm like man maybe denzel is trying to look out for jake and is trying to set him up oh um, yeah for the yeah. rest of his career and, and, and uh setting him up to succeed despite this like hellish first day part of me thinks like maybe on a different day everything works out just fine for jake and, and alonzo um but this is a, a perfect storm of bad things and Denzel really captures the amount of charm, the I'm I'm right energy that you need from a compelling villain. And also like you were saying, like the back and forth of, okay, I trust him again. Oh, he's betraying me again. Oh, maybe I trust him again. And like you're sort of in Jake's shoes where you're like, he is going back and forth trying to figure out if he Denzel is tough love setting him up for success or if he's mocking him and putting him in bad positions and every like seven minutes you're on the opposite side what else have you thought about so i've also thought a lot about how los angeles this movie is um especially about the time it was released and also like what it was representing i feel like there's a lot of movies LA is such a diverse place as far as its neighborhoods and their personalities that I feel like there's a lot of ways to have a very LA movie. Like I think Beverly Hills Cop is a very LA movie, but also like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a very LA movie. And this is just a different part of LA. And I think it is very um, just like accurate to what it was like at that time and probably still is and the cultures it was representing and things like that. And it, this really struck me sort of early in the movie where Jake Hoyt makes a comment asking Alonzo if this is like a Rodney King type LAPD, um, which is to say that they don't think the rules apply to them. They're willing to kill people to get what they need done. A very corrupt LAPD that had been going on for a really long time at that point. Um, like famously and like in the news they were known to be a corrupt police force and that was very relevant and i think they did a really good job of representing that in the movie i think it's an evergreen thing as well you know maybe the Uh, thing that like stuck with me the most is that they did that to show that like it's not just like denzel washington it's not just alonzo harris rogue bad apple like there is a known badness about the LAPD at this time and maybe he's taking it to an extreme level but it's like being talked about even within the film yeah and I I mean you have the the three wise men and those are guys that are the three like head corrupt cops um Alonzo's entire unit corrupt like this isn't a secret right this is like as it's a it's a terribly kept secret if it is one um but back to what you're saying about it being a very la movie um yeah it does kind of go through like different sections of la it goes through the gang culture of la i think um antoine fuqua and david ayer really like uh did a good job capturing 
like that that culture the guy that plays bone is literally a gang member an activist like uh there's so many elements where this is deeply los angeles even down to like snoop dogg and dr dre showing up in the movie yeah and you know another like representation of that is uh alonzo just telling hoy like you have to learn spanish like in order to survive because they're going to talk about it and or talk about you or talk in spanish and you need to know if you want to stay alive and i think that that was you know an interesting it further helps set it in the real world they also don't subtitle the the Spanish in this movie either. So like if you don't know Spanish, you're like fucked. Yeah. As well. That is true. Uh I like that the I liked in the shootout scene that Alonzo to Alonzito was calling him Kukui, which is the boogeyman or like the monster. Um but that's like a little bit of a slang term and uh I was like, "Oh, I know I know that one." <laughs> I, I know that one because of uh Tony Ferguson. Um UFC legend. Amazing. Just two other fun facts uh, that I learned in my research that I thought was interesting is the coffee shop in the beginning where uh, the the table scene, the famous table scene, um, takes place in the same coffee shop as the scene in Seven where Morgan Freeman and Gwyneth Paltrow are talking. And I'm really happy to see that because as I was watching like that scene, I was like, have I seen this movie before? Like that looks so familiar. Like maybe I have seen this. And almost instantly I was like, no, I have no idea what's going on. But when I read that, I was like, oh, that's what I know it. From. <laughs> <laughs> the the cafe has also been used in a few other movies, Gone in 60 Seconds, Ghost World, and Catch Me If You Can. So I just thought that was like a very funny piece of lore. My last fun fact is that the word fuck is used 211 times in the movie. Huh. Also reminiscent of uh, Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> okay, 211 times. That took some research. So speaking of which, uh, what were some of the other first things you looked up about this movie? Honestly, as I was watching the movie, I looked up what kind of car it was um, that they were driving because it seemed like I should have known when I was watching it, like as if it was a famous car. And it kind of is. It's a 1979 Chevy Monte Carlo. Um, which once I saw it, I, I was like, oh, yeah, I've heard of those. So that's what I looked up while I was watching the movie. But after I finished the movie, I wanted to know if this was originally supposed to be a Denzel movie. Like, was has it was it always for Denzel? Was it written for him? Um, and not originally. So there was a, a different director before Antoine Fuqua. And the movie was supposed to be Samuel L. Jackson and Matt Damon, uh, which makes more sense to me that Samuel Jackson was supposed to play this role, but I'm glad that it ultimately did end up going to Denzel Washington. Um, and when that happened, he requested that the director be replaced and Antoine Fuqua stepped in. Fascinating. I think if this movie is Sam Jackson, it is less layered, but I still think it works. Yeah. Like if Sam Jackson just replaces Denzel and is like bullying Ethan Hawke, um, I do still think it works. But um, obviously, I don't know if you have that questioning of is Denzel going to do right by me at the end yeah. kind of energy that he brings. Um, but that is fascinating to think about. I've never thought about the car. Um, I just it, I, that's the office. You know, <laughs> that's true. I can't emphasize how much I love the fact that when he says that a Dr. Dre song plays and then you see Dr. Dre later in the movie. Yeah. Um, what else did you look up? 
I wanted to know where in both Denzel Washington and Ethan Hawke's careers this movie was happening. Um, So for Denzel, it was definitely in what you and I referred to as the established Denzel uh, era, where he is known to be a good actor, is probably a movie star, but isn't like, you know, hasn't reached like legacy higher echelon maybe that we have him at now just because it's been you know, another two decades. Um, but he is a known, established name and actor and movie star at this point. So it kind of comes in that like nice sweet spot in the middle of his career. Yeah, I think, he, I mean, he's definitely a, a movie star at this point, right? He's been he's been nominated many times. He's opened movies a, a bunch at this point. But um, I, I do think, I mean, he was also in a, a Disney sports movie that was huge, Remember the Titans. I, and I think this one though was like, I mean, just seeing Denzel play the bad guy, like that's that's the hook right there, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then for Ethan Hawke, uh, he had been a child star because he was in Dead Poets Society and things like that. So it's not that people didn't know who he was and Before Sunrise had already come out, but I'm under the impression that maybe he wasn't as famous as he is now or as famous as Denzel at the time, uh, but he was certainly not a nobody. Like he definitely was an established person already as well. Yeah, I mean, he had been, I think, married to Uma Thurman at this point. I don't even think Ethan Hawke now is a movie star. I think he's just well-known among movie people. First Reform's coming out and Ethan Hawke is in it. I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll go see the Ethan Hawke movie. But I don't think people were pulling up to Black Phone being like, I'm going to go check out this Ethan Hawke movie unless there's someone like uh, you or me who you know are so ingratiated with who that is he's more like uh oh, i really like that guy i can't remember his name off the top of my head though yeah not to besmirch ethan hawk like he was a huge star in the 90s with like reality bites and all that stuff too so um definitely not on equal playing field with denzel but definitely uh established in his own right then uh the last thing was that eminem was originally offered or after matt damon eminem was offered the role of jay coit which i think is very funny um, but turned it down to star in his semi-autobiographical film, Eight Mile, which also won him an Oscar. Um, but at the time, Ryan Felipe, Scott Speedman, Freddie Prince Jr., Paul Walker, and Tobey Maguire all tested for the role, and uh, it went to Ethan Hawke. Fascinating. I don't... It, it, this is such Fast and Furious bullshit, but I definitely could see Paul Walker in it. <laughs> I've not seen a Fast and Furious movie, and I have no relationship to Paul Walker, but I trust you. <laughs> we'll 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 make that happen on this podcast. But yeah, um, I'd be into Eminem. I hadn't even thought about that. I'd be I'd be kind be. of into it. I I low key I don't care about Eminem. I never really listened to Eminem. Uh, but I'm kind of into the idea of Eminem as an actor, and maybe it's because it's completely untapped. Uh, it's not untapped. <laughs> he has a film. He has a film. I know the other famous one that he could have been in was Southpaw. Yeah. And I actually would have rather seen him in Southpaw than Jake Gyllenhaal. I'm still going to see Jake Gyllenhaal in, Roach, uh, in Roadhouse, you know, when he plays a former MMA fighter. But um, I, I, I like Eminem in this, in the idea of that. Wild. Um, okay. The last thing I looked up, of course, was the Oscars. Did it win an Oscar? Naturally. Was it nominated? And yes, of course it was. Um, Denzel won for Best Actor. He was the first black actor to win two acting Oscars. 
It was also the first time a black actor had won Best Actor in a film that was also directed by a black director. Um, and then I did get a chance to watch his speech. It's very classic. It's very timeless. It's very like when you think of how movie stars are supposed to act and the wisdom they're supposed to bestow, it's very just Denzel. And I just really liked it. Um, if you go check it out. And then Ethan Hawke was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, um, but he did lose to Jim Broadbent for Iris, which is a movie I have not seen. I don't think I've ever heard of it. Um, I know we're going to get to questions in a little bit, but a quick one real quick. Is this category fraud? No, I think that best. I think Denzel is the actor and I think Ethan Hawke is the supporting actor. Even though we start and end with Ethan Hawke. Yes, this is Denzel's movie okay. that we are viewing from Ethan Hawke's point of view. Speaking of questions, do you have any other questions for me? Um, so I wanted to start just by asking what your relationship is to the movie. I love knowing this. Like, where did this come in your movie viewing life? Um, this movie was always a- around. I felt like it was always on TNT. Um, and I honestly watched it before I knew the context of like, this is one of Denzel's best movies. Like, I just watched it because Denzel is really good and it's like why wouldn't i watch it obviously I, I had the tv edit so i didn't get to see like the full scope of everything and so i probably didn't watch the full unedited version um until maybe the last handful of years but um i don't know it's just one of those movies that you grow up with um when you're watching you know action or crime films and then i also was thinking about this a lot over the last two days uh, is this the scariest villain we've covered on Blind Spotters? I think the other two contenders are the family from Get Out and uh, Dr. Lecter. It's definitely Dr. Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> I don't know. Nope. <laughs> Nobody else is eating you. That's true. But I do. I was listening to that episode maybe like two months ago. And you had a comment. You're like, that movie's not that scary. And I was like, well, we do watch him eat a person. <laughs> no, I mean, like, if, but like in real life, if like Alonzo pulls up and Dr. Lecter pull up, I'm more terrified of Dr. Lecter. Get Out also like equally terrifying, but I don't think Alonzo is uh, nearly as, as scary, even though he is very domineering. I think he was absolutely horrifying. I was so scared. This is like the fair. scariest movie I saw in the last six months. <laughs> fam. <laughs> as a noted horror fan. I know. As this person I feel who is, really serious at, about that. A person who has at the very least watched Bones and All in the last six months. I've seen probably Smile in the last six months. Oh, God. I don't even want to think about it. I hate... You know what should be banned really is really just weird. scary movie advertisements after like 10 p.m. Like I need the algorithm to fix that for me. <laughs> I'm just trying to scroll on TikTok, man. <laughs> Such a wild—that's a wilder take than me asking if Denzel is actually the supporting actor. <laughs> All right. Do you have any questions for me? I have two, and then or I have three. Um, one I forgot to put in that line. Um, so you asked me earlier if you were in the wrong for never, like, f- at all pulling for Alonzo to get away with it. So I just wanted to ask, never. Not at one point where you're like, man, I might be on his side. So the way it came up was that, you know, it was said that 
people were rooting for him. And I think because I was so afraid of him, I was like, I'm rooting for Jake to go the fuck home and never talk to this guy again. (laughs) I wanted to like get away from him. So I like wasn't like amped every time he was like doing another horrifying thing. Um, But I think I might have been in that position that we were talking about where like you can't decide where he is on the moral compass. And so I was like, Oh, he's a bad guy. Oh, he's teaching Jake. Oh, he's a bad guy. Oh, he's just teaching Jake. So back and forth, probably until, of course, like the the crux of the movie where Alonzo leaves Jake in the hands of the the Mexican gangsters. Um, so I think that really turned my my mind on like if I was rooting for him or not. But I don't think I was ever like actively like. I think that he should keep doing this. <laughs> Well, I mean, obviously he's wrong, but like, you know, we watch so many movies where we're rooting for like the guy to get away with the heist or, you yeah. know, I mean, the Sopranos. That's the whole point of the show. Right. Or like, you know, the Godfather or Heat or, you know, you love Baby Driver. Like, Baby Driver. <laughs> um, the other question I have is if Jake's training day is a week before and Alonzo has not yet gone to Vegas, how different do you think Jake's training day is? I think it's different, but I don't think it's that different. Like, I think that, like, Alonzo is still putting Jake through this series of hoops to, like, prove himself and putting him in danger um, throughout most of the day. When I watched it this time, I actually convinced myself that Jake didn't, quote unquote, earn his spot on the team because he had only been a cop for, like, two years at this point, if I remember right. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think Denzel needed a fall guy because like this is only something you can notice on rewatch, but midway through the movie, he's on the phone and he said, make sure the bathtub's clean. And then you realize he's talking to Smiley. Yeah. And he's like midway through this day. He's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to have this guy killed. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I actually felt like on this watch, I'm like, oh, I don't know if Jake is ever was ever supposed to actually be on the team. I think he was always supposed to be the guy to take the fall. That's fair. And then lastly, is this the best Denzel performance you have seen? So this is where I have to admit that I have a really big blind spot for Denzel Washington movies. I'm going to name some big ones that I've never seen. And you're going to do me the courtesy of the purpose of the podcast and not scream at me (laughs) that I haven't seen these movies. I haven't seen Glory. I haven't seen Philadelphia. I haven't seen... The Pelican Brief, Crimson Tide, Virtuosity, Devil in a Blue Dress, He Got Game, The Bone Collector, The Hurricane, Remember the Titans, John Q, Man on Fire, Inside Man, Deja Vu, uh, American Gangster, and the rest of them aren't that good. Uh, So there's a lot of Denzel Washington famous movies that I have not seen. (laughs) So you've seen Training Day, Malcolm X, and like Fences. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Correct. And the Manchurian Candidate. That's fair. I just think it's funny because I think you were the one that was, like proposed the category. I mean, you've seen Malcolm X. That is, which would lead me, that like leads me to my answer that Malcolm X is my answer for best Denzel performance. And I think that that's fair. And I don't think that people thinking Training Day is his best performance is outrageous. I think that's also fair. 
Um, these might be in the top two, maybe top five real good options, but but my answer is Malcolm X out of the the two. That's fair. I think Denzel is a is an actor who has subgenres. Yeah. Um like you know how Ryan Gosling has two versions of himself where it's either like wooden or charming? Yes. Denzel has five of those. And I think this is the best version of bully Denzel. But I think Malcolm X Partially because he has to do more and partially because that movie's three hours long and partially because it's an awesome film. Uh, you, It's almost like the sampler for Denzel. It's it's where you get the most, uh, where he's doing the most uh, within the role. So um, yeah. I don't think you are wrong there. Maybe in 2023, I, I narrow some of these off. Like I, I cross some of these off the list. Um, I think that's all I had to ask you about that movie. I don't know if I have anything else to say. Oh, I do just want to highlight the coldest moment Denzel has in this movie. He has a lot of like awesome, I wish I was Denzel. I wish I could be half as cool as Denzel. But w- when Jake stops the oh two crackheads from raping the girl and yes. then he pulls out both guns and then like clicks them together, I highly support gun control. <laughs> However, in films... <laughs> I don't know if there's anything cool I've ever seen anybody do with a gun outside of like a Western. Yeah, that was again. That's just further proof. This is the scariest movie I saw in the last six months. <laughs> I think the difference between Alonzo and Hannibal Lecter, among many things, is when Alonzo does evil stuff, I'm like, hell yeah, nice. And then when Hannibal Lecter does evil stuff, I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? <laughs> I didn't have a single moment where I wasn't like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? (laughs) (laughs) Last question for you. Would you watch this movie again? I'm really torn because it's so good, but I was so stressed. So would I watch it? Like if it was on or someone wanted to watch it or like I wanted to show it to somebody? Absolutely. Like if it's on TV, I have no problem watching it, but am I going to be like, you know what? I'm really in the mood to watch Training Day, the most stressful movie I've ever seen. <laughs> so I'm somewhere in the middle. Is that? I hope that can be an answer. I would say, you know, maybe if it's sticking in your brain, pull up some of the scenes that are more chatty. Because I do think there's some cool writing in this film that oh. makes me miss David Ayer pre like Suicide Squad. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, the, everything about this movie is uh, outstanding. That has nothing. But I do understand the fact that it's stressful. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, Zach, I think it's time to sort of showcase this range that Denzel Washington has and talk about a movie where he plays a very different character. What happened in 2004's Manchurian Candidate? Well, that's that's the question of the movie, isn't it? It's like what happened (laughs) for real? And then what happened in someone's brain? You know, is Raymond Shaw the kindest, warmest, most friendly, best person I know? Um, All right. So this movie is directed by Jonathan Demme, written by Daniel Pine and Dean Drugaris. I'm sorry if I mispronounced both your names. It is based on the 1959 novel and 1962 film of the same name. So we start with Sergeant First Class Raymond Shaw, who is played by Lee Shriver. He's a decorated soldier. And in 2008, when the film is taking place, he is now a popular congressman. Uh, His mother, Virginia Senator Eleanor Prentice Shaw, who is played by Meryl Streep, uses her influence to secure his nomination as vice president for the upcoming presidential race 
um, instead of Senator Tom Jordan, who is played by John Voigt. Coincidentally, uh, Jordan's daughter Jocelyn is Raymond Shaw's like childhood sweetheart. She's played by Vera Formiga. Uh, meanwhile, Major Bennett Marco, who is uh, played by Denzel Washington, is giving a speech to a Boy Scout troop about his time in the Gulf War. There, he was Shaw's commanding officer and present when Shaw apparently single-handedly defeated the enemy that ambushed them and earned the Medal of Honor. Um, after this talk that he's giving, Marco is visited by Al Melvin, who is played by Jeffrey Wright. He was a part of their crew, and he is clearly unwell and haunted, but adamant about these dreams he's having about their unit and that fateful day. He gives Marco a notebook of these drawings from his dreams, and soon Marco also starts to have these nightmares. It is uh, eventually revealed that their unit was actually overtaken, kidnapped, experimented on, and Raymond was brainwashed uh, to kill off members of their platoon. So Marco starts investigating to find out what really happened. Uh, he goes to New York City. On the way there, he meets Rosie, who is played by Kimberly Elise, who offers him a place to stay. While at her apartment, he finds a lump on his back, and he digs at it with a knife and finds a tiny metallic object. However, Rosie is trying to come into the bathroom because she hears Marco struggling, and he drops the metallic object down the sink. So when Marco goes to visit Raymond at campaign headquarters, they kind of catch up. He kind of tries to um, bring up these dreams and, and kind of paint the picture of what really happened um, during their stint in the Gulf War. But after they catch up for a while, he just decides to bite Raymond's back and uh, remove that same implant. Marco has it analyzed and learns that it is nanotech connected to Manchurian Global, which is a private equity form private equity firm connected to Eleanor. He shows the findings to Senator Jordan, who then confronts the Shaws, but Eleanor goes like Captain America Winter Soldier and activates Raymond's brainwashed assassin self, and Raymond kills both the senator and, accidentally, Jocelyn. The FBI meet with Marco and Raymond to tell him of a potential assassination plot. Meanwhile, though, Raymond and Governor Arthur, who is the presidential candidate, uh, win the White House. Eleanor tries to call Marco, but it's actually Raymond on the phone, and they learn of the plan to assassinate Governor Arthur so Raymond can then become the president. And he would be the first like privately owned and operated president of the United States. Um, Raymond resists the brainwashing techniques inspired by Vera Formiga, who among us. And at the acceptance party, Marco goes to plant himself in a vent to hide and then shoot the president-elect. But Raymond then grabs Eleanor to dance while they're all celebrating on stage. And Marco realizes he is basically creating a chance to kill both the Shahs, uh, which he does. The Manchurian conspiracy is revealed on the news, and Marco is taken to where he and his unit were held. Afterward, he drops a photo of his unit and Raymond's Medal of Honor into the ocean. I feel like I really fucked up some of the parts of it, but, you know, how did no, I do it? You did a good job. It's a confusing, or there's like a lot of plot. Um, so I think you did a great job. Why don't you tell me why you uh, chose this film for me? So I love Jonathan Demme. I love a lot of his movies. Obviously, we were just talking about um, having covered Silence and Lambs on this podcast, and that's another famous one. So I was really interested in him, but it's also in the same way that The Master is but isn't, but is definitely about Scientology. Uh, the Maturing Candidate like, is but isn't, but definitely is about the MK Ultra experiments, um, which is something I've always been very interested in and I will talk about later. Um, but those two things sort of drew me to this film and it's, it's always been just something I've really liked. Nice. Demi also directed, um, Rachel getting married, right? Yes. Which we like 
just talked about for some reason. Oh, we talked about it because it reminded me of Mencalia, which is kind of funny to say out loud. (laughs) (laughs) More Melancholia reminded me of Rachel getting married more than the other way around, to be honest. Honestly, that's more Melancholia talk that I'd ever imagined that we'd ever have after the Melancholia pod. (laughs) Um, But I'm excited to enter Amanda's Conspiracy Corner. Yes. Um, What were some of the first things that stood out to you when watching the movie? Jonathan Demi loves faces. Yes, he does. If you think about Silence of the Lambs, if you think about Philadelphia, if you think about this movie, there's so many close-ups and direct-to-camera looks. Um, you can see the shades of it that have influenced, you know, like Barry Jenkins or PTA. Or um, This is the last film that Demi makes with Tak Fujimoto, who he had worked with several times. Um, and you can see their style and their collaboration really um, come to the forefront here. I think um, watching this movie even 30 years later, you can see how Demi really knew how to apply like tension and emotional stakes to material. And obviously that kind of signature move, I guess, or that stylistic choice that he not leans on, but utilizes a lot of is uh, something that really pulls at the conspiracy tension paranoia um, of the movie. Yeah, I feel like Demi does paranoia like no other. There's also like an intimacy that comes with these close-ups too, right? Like Mm -hmm. I watched the first three seasons of Westworld. And so I'm very used to seeing Jeffrey Wright look confused and concerned. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it is a good utilization of Jeffrey Wright in like what the five minutes that he's on the scene um, on screen. It's a really sweaty movie. I mean, these close-ups also speak to that. And um, I think that's a through line of this story, which we'll get to later. Um, but I was considering what it would have been like to watch this movie in a theater. I think there's like a wideness to those close-ups yeah. um, that Demi does that I can't imagine like the facilitation of like emotion that kind of brings. Yeah. I've not seen this movie in theaters, but I have seen Silence of the Lambs. And it really is just like full face, like full giant screen. Um, It is really something. I also think something um, Demi is really adept at is using music. Yeah. Like off the jump, this movie has like three needle drops. And then the one that kind of stuck out the most is at the um, climactic ending of the film um, when they win the presidency and Better Things by Fountains of Wayne is playing. I think that's just a funny or spot on kind of uh song to play as all this chaos is about to ensue yeah absolutely um another thing that stood out obviously is this movie understands that it has meryl streep and meryl streep understands that she is in this movie like so spot on like before we even get to denzel Meryl Streep cooks an entire room of politicians to bully them into making her son the vp uh, candidate Roger Ebert in his review called Meryl the stage mother from hell. That's so funny. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> in the original film in 1962's version, this role was played by Angela Lansbury. And so she had to live up to a lot playing this role. And if there's going to be anybody that lives up to that pressure, it's it's going to be Meryl Streep. I don't have as big of a grasp on Meryl's filmography because it's so vast, but She's also someone who doesn't often play villains, but I do feel like in the 21st century, at the very least, this is her best villain performance up until 
Devor's Prada. Yeah. Um, obviously, a politician who's in the pocket of and has sold their soul to a corporation is a, a very specific kind of performance. But she is just so evil. Yeah. <laughs> this movie. It's pretty crazy. And then based on just like her character design and mannerism, some people initially thought that she was basing her performance on Hillary Clinton um, at the time. But she denies that. And so she took inspiration from other people, other performances, other politicians. Um, But most of the reviews I saw were like, she has the haircut. I think that was one of my big takeaways rewatching it was like, I really forgot how much of a three pronged movie this is. Like it is Denzel's movie for sure, but it is almost equally Meryl and Leaf Striver's movie. And I had kind of forgotten that part. Um, but I think it's enough Denzel's movie to count as like Denzel movie. Yeah, it, it definitely is um a three hander. You kind of get uh a more, I think, well rounded understanding of what the hell is going on because of that. Um, because you get the viewpoint of like the puppet, the outsider, and the puppet master. I think it's a very fun Meryl Streep movie. Um, And we'll get to this in a little bit, but almost more fun Meryl Streep movie than a Denzel movie. And then the other thing that stood out, I'm insane, so I decided to watch the 1962 version uh, of the movie first because I wanted to be like, I don't know, I just wanted the context of the remake. And in 2023, where we see so many like meta references to past versions of stories, I just wanted to get any of those nods. Yeah. And there's a little bit and there's like some really deft and smart adjustments. Like one of the things that they only say once that is said a bunch in the 1962 version is about Raymond Shaw being the exact quote is Raymond Shaw is the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my entire life. (laughs) And in the 1962 version, Raymond Shaw is like way less charming. And it's obvious that like they were brainwashed. Yeah. Um, but there's uh, a lot of differences. The conspiracy is more teased in the 2004 version. Um, in the 1962 version, you kind of learn about it in the first act. Um, obviously, with 40 more years of television and media understanding, 2004's version really takes advantage of that. TV is a bigger part in the remake for obvious reasons. Um, and then in the 1962 version, Raymond Shaw is activated by a phone call and saying, play some solitaire. And then he like flips over a queen of hearts and then he goes to do what he's got to do instead of the whole winter soldier like activation words. Uh, so there, there's a lot of different kind of aspects to the differences and the commentary and both are pretty timely and kind of capture their moments well, especially with 20 years of hindsight onto this 2004 version. Um, but uh, we'll talk more about that in a second. Have you seen the 1962 one? I haven't. Um, I really should. There's like no reason I haven't seen it, uh, but no, it, it definitely, since you had told me you were watching it, I have become like more interested in seeing it. It's a weird watch uh, it, because it's like in the thick of just Cold War paranoia. Um, yeah. There's some like pretty heavy anti-Asian sentiment because like it's more about borders and corporations. And so there's some tough stuff there. Um, Frank Sinatra plays the Marco role, which is an interesting aspect to it. Um, but it's worth watching just to, it's considered one of the better or best, you know, political conspiracy thrillers um, out there. Yeah, definitely. Um, so what have you thought about most since you've watched the movie? 
so since this month's theme is Denzel Washington movies, I watched it with the lens of like, how does Denzel do in the movie? Um, or what kind of Denzel movie is this? And it's a weird Denzel movie. I don't know if that's a weird take, um, but it's a very restrained version of Denzel. He's very stripped down. He's very unaware and he's very out of command of the situation. Um, even when he might have a little bit more knowledge than other people, or even when he literally be the commanding officer in the unit, uh, it kind of reminded me of those Jimmy Stewart performances where it'd be a darker film and uh, he'd be kind of going through it. Uh, you think of the, you know, Vertigo is obvious one. Yeah, um, that's what I was thinking. Knew too much. Uh, the portion of It's a Wonderful Life where he realizes the mistakes he has made. Um, Jimmy Stewart could really go dark and really sell that. And I think this is like the one kind of Denzel that isn't awesome. Hmm. I, I feel like Denzel has such energy and not even just charisma, but an ability to kind of create kinetic energy in a movie that when he's kind of stagnant, the movie gets stagnant. And I could be wrong, but that that's just kind of the feeling I had. No, I mean, these are like your takeaways. Like, so you definitely can't be wrong, but. I think like because there are because you have people like Merrill and Leave obviously Leave Shriver not as much, but also equally the same. Uh it is hard for Denzel to be in the spotlight, maybe. Yeah, and it's it's just a fascinating choice, uh and it's a fascinating point of his career because obviously this is like we said, post training day. He's the driving force behind the plot unraveling but he's not really the driving force of the movie and and so it, it just it was just a different version that i haven't seen of him as much um like it's but this is the same year that man on fire comes out and man on fire in my head is like this idealized denzel um so it's cool to watch him play where things are like unraveling or like cards are out of his hand and he's incredibly uncomfortable um it doesn't have a real command of the situation yeah but also the the poster is literally just Denzel Washington's face. Like it's still uh, definitely captivated by his act. Um, another thing I've thought about is the reception in 2004 versus now. Um, in a lot of the reviews I was reading, most people were comparing it a little unfavorably to um, the 1962 version. But there's been some reclamation of it. One of our favorite movie minds, Sean Fennessy even said that he thought this whole movie at first was just completely unnecessary, but now he has come to appreciate it a lot more. And then there's some people that were looking at this film in the scope of um, politically a Trump era movie before the Trump era was a thing I, in the political world. The Manchurian candidate is a like turn of phrase. It was used on, you know, when Barack Obama was running, obviously is used with uh, during Trump's candidacy and presidency. Things have only become in a way more unhinged in terms of the graphics flying on screen and all of that. And even more so considering the more knowledge we have about how the war on terror actually went and what was really going on in the White House during the Bush administration. I mean, Raymond Shaw is a third generation politician and so is George W. Bush. And yes. so there's some real parallels that you can draw there if you want to, and and they're there for the taking. Um, so it's definitely one of those movies that if you think about it in that way, it gets really icky feeling. Yeah, I think that also like helps the movie have like gravitas 
long lasting. Yeah, and I think that's what I was saying. Both the 1962 version and the 2004 cut um, capture the different kinds of paranoia specifically. It was like a pretty good lens as to what you might be worried about in that time. Yeah. Um, What were some of the things you looked up after you finished the movie? As the opening credits were rolling, I saw it was produced by Tina Sinatra. So I was like, is that like Sinatra Sinatra? And yes, it was his daughter. Um, Frank Sinatra actually owned the rights to this movie um, until his death. Wow. And the the 62 version has this weird mythology around it because during its run, it got pulled from theaters kind of early. Some people think it was because of like the JFK assassination or there's just a lot of stuff going on. And it wasn't until like the late 80s where it was re-released. So um, I was listening to a podcast with Mark Harris um, on Slate. He was talking about how growing up, this was like this kind of movie you couldn't find. And so when it was finally released, it was like, well, we can, you know, we can go see this film in theaters and it kind of regained its second kind of life. Um, For Sinatra, since he held the rights, uh, the rumor was that he was the one that like destroyed copies of it and was like keeping it from theaters because he was friends with JFK um, and JFK really liked the 62 movie. But it turns out that was more just a rumor. And um, in an interview, Tina Sinatra had said that her dad was like, it's pretty ripe for a remake at any point um, Mm. before he died. So I found that fascinating. Frank Sinatra is like, uh, I haven't seen a ton of his movies, but every time I see him, I'm like, what's Frank Sinatra doing in this movie? (laughs) And the Manchurian candidate uh, is an interesting performance because he's also very not like uncharismatic and he's also very sweaty um, as, as Marco. So it's fun to know that these two are connected in that way, not just like within the film, but also in the creation of it. And then I kind of wanted to learn more about like the original versus the book and um, versus this movie. Uh, we've talked about it a lot already. One of the things I like the most about uh, the 2004 version is one, the updating didn't feel like a dated, unheralded grasp on like the times, but it felt like a good adjustment. Like I was talking about with the media aspect to things. I appreciate that they made Rosie a real character because in the 62 version, she's weird like she just shows up and immediately falls in with frank sinatra like who among us but she doesn't really have a purpose and so i like that rosie in this version is an fbi agent and kind of has more agency really quickly i just thought this was nuts uh there's like an incest plot in the novel whoa ew what between 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 mama shaw and oh child shaw no yep i don't like that at all i'm glad that was cut hey man how did you like house of the dragon it's different. <laughs> I, agree, I agree. I agree. <laughs> it was just brother and sister. They're fine. It's, uh, it's Matt Smith. It's different. <laughs> anyway, uh, I just think this is so prime for a prestige TV remake. Yes. Yes. Like it, it's just dripping with that. Okay. Do you have any questions? Anything uh, that you. Wanted to know more about it. What's your relationship to this movie? I I know that you have that conspiracy corner that you want to hop on. So I kind of want to open the door for you to do that now. Yeah, I think this is a good place to do it. So I had not watched this movie till maybe like two years ago, um, two, three years ago, maybe. It's definitely a recent watch, um, but I had fallen down a rabbit hole of learning more about MKUltra 
which I'll talk about, which is something that I had always been really interested in, but I did like a very intense, like five, six week obsessive deep dive on it. And uh, then I watched this movie as I was in the middle of that section. So I'll tell you a little bit about what MK Ultra is. And I'll start with the fact that it became publicly acknowledged and confirmed by the CIA in 1975. So this is like one of those things that conspiracy theorists like turn to when they're like, no, these theories aren't theories. They're really happening because this was a conspiracy theory for so long. And then the CIA was like, no, we we did that. Here's like documents and proof and all that kind of stuff. So it was essentially an illegally run and government funded super soldier program that the CIA put together from 1953 to about 1973 when they were finally uh, stripped of their funding. And they hired some of the doctors from the Nazi camps to create a serum that they could use on subjects uh, to manipulate their mental state, essentially. And they wanted to be able to create a soldier that they could like activate with a set of words uh, to do whatever they wanted in case there was another situation like the Nazi movement and then the U.S. would automatically win because they had like a whole super soldier thing. And the way they did this was they used like really high doses of psychoactive drugs. This is also when you learn, Zach, that the CIA created acid um, because it was originally made for this program and then got became a street drug um, because they would take originally they started uh, experimenting on prisoners. And then when they essentially ran out of prisoners to use without getting in trouble, they started hiring like college students. It would be like, get paid a hundred dollars, like do drugs for the government, like things oh, like totally that. for that. And they like moved it to San Francisco where they got a lot of people from the Haight-Ashbury area, which is how it be how LSD and acid became a street drug in that like hippie era um, was because like people were essentially being used, paid to use it so they could like study them. But it was also extremely torturous and they used uh, verbal and physical and sexual abuse um, during these experiments. They would dose people with acid every hour for like 48 hours just to see what happens. So like as you're tripping, another trip hits you and they would use sensory deprivation, hypnosis, electroshocks, isolation, like a whole series of things because essentially they weren't able to create anything that could create a super soldier because that's not possible. So they would try different methods to see if it would finally work. And it took 20 years for the American government to stop funding this. And that is essentially what this movie is about. <laughs> and it's just like the master where it's like, you know, it's PTA is not going to say that he used the story of uh, the creator of Scientology. But like you watch it, and you're like, well, this is pretty parallel <laughs> to like what's happening. And so. Because of my interest in that program, it just is really, really interesting to me. That was a lot of information. My, dude, my mind's blown. That's nuts. There's a really good book. If anyone ever wants to learn more about it, it's called Chaos. Um, 
and it is a lot about the MK Ultra program, but also how MK Ultra is connected to the Manson murders um, and sort of the spirit of the 70s in general. And it's a really, really, really good book. It's like very historically accurate as well. Um, so if you ever wanted to read more about it, that is like a really good place to start. Damn, I'm like a little speechless. I mean, I'm I'm speechless for many reasons, including but not limited to the fact that that this is where acid came from. Yes, isn't that nuts? Holy shit! Yeah. So <laughs> I really wanted to talk about it and talk about this movie in relationship to it because you watch it and you're like, look, I know you're saying it's not about MK Ultra, but it really kind of feels <laughs> like it is. My other big note to lighten things up is that I really do have such a crush on Leif Schreiber. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's all you need to know about me. That like last 15 minutes. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, my brain sees him in two ways. One, as Sabretooth. What? Who is that? X-Men? Isn't that the Wolverine's brother? Isn't that his name? I don't think much about... Wolverine's brother, to be honest with you. I know, but he was on X-Men Origins. He was his brother. He was in X-Men Origins. And also as his his role at, uh, in Mixed Nuts, which is a tough look. Those are the two things you think of? I Those are the two movies I know of Le- from Leaf Schreiber, specifically. Oh, my God. No, he's in Spotlight. He plays the... the oh, that's fish. right. Yeah. Like, okay, that's a better way to look at him. Yeah, I always think of Spotlight. And then I haven't seen this show, but it has such like a a stance in the culture that I also see him as um, Ray Donovan. Oh, that's right. And like a show I should watch just because like I, I know it is objectively good um, and that I'd probably like it. Uh, but yes, that's that's how I see him is like both Spotlight and Ray Donovan. But he's also in, he's in a lot of movies. He was also in uh, the Omen remake in 2006. It's really good. He's in the first three Scream movies. And he's also Victor Creed in X-Men Origins Wolverine. Yes, you're correct. (laughs) It's just a lot of, it's a lot of Hugh Hugh Jackman just angrily screaming, Victor! Uh, Lee Schreiber, what a cutie. (laughs) (laughs) That's my other big takeaway from rewatching this movie. (laughs) Nice. Well, I'm glad I watched it. I'm glad you did, too. Um, As I was watching it, I was like a little worried because it wasn't as Denzel as Training Day. But I still feel like you could like that. It is an inignorable Denzel Washington film. It's a fun addition to his filmography in the sense that it's not an ensemble per se, but he isn't the bona fide number one person on the call sheet like he probably is but Meryl Streep is there too and then Leave Schreiber is also has a lot of agency within the movie all right well which one did you like best out of the two training day I don't know if you had asked, but I'm I don't know if I'll watch Manchurian Candidate again because it's just so paranoid and I'll probably feel way worse about it after uh the MK Ultra knowledge <laughs> <laughs> so um I already watched training day like at least once every year year and a half so uh that's gonna be the one that I like the most out of the two what about you I think that Training Day is the better movie, but I do like Venturian Candidate because it's way less intense. <laughs> I mean, it's still pretty intense. It's definitely it's definitely intense. That is more a note on the intensity of Training Day than it is on the non-intensity of Venturian Candidate. 
there's more knives going into skin in Manchurian Candidate than in Training Day. That's true, but there's about 210 less fucks. (laughs) 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 All right, which movie do you think our beloved vampire Louis would love more? Okay, I actually think it's Training Day. Even though we've said in the past that Louis does not love violence, I think Louis might feel some empathy with Jake because like Jake, Louis also thought uh, his mentor figure was going to you know, bring him into this new world of affluence and enjoyment. And it turned out that Lestat just wanted to uh, make use of him, basically. I think you might be right. I, I agree on all fronts. Yes. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Louis, if you're listening, let us know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. If you disagree, please. My DMs are open. Um, so for our next movies, uh, March, we're doing musical March. I'm very excited. It's also my birthday month. So famously, what a better way to celebrate than to watch uh, my favorite like genre of movies. So Zach, what are you watching and what do you know about it? I am watching Cabaret. Um, I don't know much about it other than what I learned when we went over musicals in Chicago. I know this is a Fosse joint. I know what that means now. And I know it won a lot of awards. I'm so proud of you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I did listen during Amanda's theater corner. (laughs) You learn things if you listen to this pod. What about you? What are you watching and what do you know about it? So this is a huge one in my life. This is the spot. closest I've ever come to being like, what the fuck, Amanda? Yeah. And you know what? Valid. This is just one that for no reason whatsoever, I just never got to. And that's what this show is all about. So I'm watching Singing in the Rain, which is only one of the most famous pieces of me- like media of all time across yeah. the board of everything. Um so I'm very excited to watch it. Uh, I know like a few of the dance numbers and I know a few of the songs uh, from the movie. I know that Gene Kelly and Demi Reynolds are in it. Um, I also know that Rita Moreno is in it from the original cast of uh, West Side Story. Um, and I also know it's influenced pretty much everything. So I'm very excited to finally watch it. Um and sing along to the songs I already know. <laughs> Not only has it influenced pretty much everything, it has most recently influenced one of your favorite movies and uh, um, one of the more divisive movies on this podcast, Babylon. I know. Maya and I talked about it after you left the recording yesterday. Um, yeah. I'm excited. <laughs> I also love Babylon, but probably not as much as I will love Singing in the Rain. So that's good. I mean, we'll see. You know, you watch Babylon first, so that can have a kind of an influence. Um, Other than one of the greatest American movies of all time, what else is on your watch list? So I've got two movies um, that I want to watch before the Oscars. Um, So these are kind of on the the top of my list there. I want to watch After Sun and Elvis, both for the um, best actor in a leading role um, category. Of this year's Academy Awards. Those are two that I missed. Um, And then as this podcast uh, shows, I'm always trying to watch movies that I should have seen before uh, that are in my blind spot. So I'm going to try to check out Slumdog Millionaire that I saw is on HBO Max because I've just never seen it. And I am a 
like in love with Dev Patel. So I think it will be really fun. I mean, you're about to see Paul Mescal, Austin Butler, and Dev Patel in that trio. Happy Valentine's Day to me. Yeah, that's, you know what? Happy Valentine's Wow. Happy Valentine's Day, guys, by the way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, Zach, what's on your watch list? Um, so one of them is Paris Blues, which is a uh, movie that is starring Paul Newman, Sidney Portier, and Joanne Woodward. After I watched Hustler, I was like, I need to watch more Paul Newman movies. And so uh, Paris Blues is on that list. Um, also Dark Passage. I realized recently that um, I had seen all but one of the Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall movies, Dark Passage being the outlier. So I could think of a few better ways to spend time than with Lauren Bacall and Bogey. And then lastly, one of the 2022 films that I continue to forget to watch uh, is Emily the Criminal. This is a movie that I have considered watching at least 12 times, 10 of those times on an airplane. Um, I know it is an enjoyable Aubrey Plaza vehicle. I haven't seen a a lot of Aubrey Plaza movies or TV shows because I never watched Parks and Rec. Um, but I'm interested in uh, seeing her in this kind of movie. So I'm excited for each of those and um, excited for you to watch After Sun because that was one of my favorite movies of 2022. If dedicated listeners of the pod have indeed listened to our um, slightly unhinged best of the year episode. <laughs> I watched Emily the Criminal last year. I really enjoyed it. I hope you like it too. Um, I think it's a perfect plain movie. Um, so maybe in your I have some flights coming up. I was so. saying your travels you can put it on. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, you can always find an episode of the Blind Spotters podcast on the second Tuesday of the month. We are going to be sprinkling in a few bonus episodes toward the beginning of the year. And if you've got other ideas for bonus episodes you'd like us to cover, just let us know. We're we're open to suggestions. Um, you can follow the podcast on Instagram at Blind Spotters Pod. You can also follow us on Twitter at Blind Spotters. Zach, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Zach Pockleb. And as always, you can find me on Letterboxd. Amanda, what about you? You can find me on all social media at Amanda Luberto to send me any compliments you have. We did it. We did it. Wow. Great job, friend. Denzel Washington, what a guy. Denzel Washington. You know what? If Very you have talented. any blind spots with Denzel Washington, fill them in. Yeah. Light them up. Do it. That will be me. <laughs> I guarantee it. In the words of many Denzel Washington roles, I guarantee it. It'll be great. That is going to be a big thing for me this year. I'll, I'll keep everyone keep everyone updated. All right. Go. Go watch him right now. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Go on walk. Because King Kong ain't got shit on me. Did you know that line was ad-libbed? I did know that. Yeah. <laughs>